0: Welcome to Ragbag's Bonus Bag. My name's Frank Burton. Here we have the penultimate part of the audiobook version of my book, Everything I Am, the first ragbag novel. It will not be the last. And seen as you're getting this for free, please do buy a copy of the paperback from Amazon and give it to someone you love. Yes, this is a guilt trip, but also that would be a nice thing to do, isn't it? Still a guilt trip, Frank? Here's Everything I Am, part four. Chapter 21 I woke up at two in the morning. I still hadn't got out of the habit of waking up expecting to be still in prison. The sensation of still having alcohol in my system helped to point my waking brain in the direction of the present day. What had happened? I'd been to the pub with Rupert and Graham. We had a good chat about my dad. Then what? I came home and fell asleep. That means I hadn't eaten anything all day, no breakfast, liquid lunch followed by a very long nap. I staggered to the kitchen and made myself a sandwich. I sat eating on a beanbag in the living room. So my dad was gay and Graham was right. This was something I needed to process. It wasn't a trivial thing. It was a whole part of his life I never knew about. I started wondering what life would have been like for my dad as a young man, growing up gay in the 60s and 70s. He must have known early on, but the way society was back then, it's understandable he didn't make it public knowledge. So he ended up getting married to a woman and living a lie every day of his life. He must have been hell. Or was it? Is that the way it happened? Or was that just my assumption? Something still didn't make sense about any of this. It's true that I never really knew my dad but he always seemed like someone who genuinely didn't care what other people thought of him and for better or worse I inherited that quality from him. My mum obviously knew. She'd been skirting around the subject deliberately stopping herself using certain words. So how did she feel about it? When did she figure it out? Did he tell her himself or did she catch my dad and Peter Bennington red-handed the way she caught him in the betting shop? I was wide awake with nothing to do but think. To take my mind off things, I turned on my computer with the intention of watching some old Pink Panther cartoons on this new website I'd discovered called YouTube. But then I clicked into my emails and saw Uncle Claude had replied to that threatening message I'd sent. My heart sank even further. What made me think talking tough was a good idea? I'd realised in hindsight this was completely the wrong approach to take with Uncle Claude. I didn't want to read his response but couldn't help opening it. His message was short and to the point. It's a shame you felt the need to talk to me like that, Frank. I'm disappointed. Yes, I'll speak to yourself and your lawyer... Name the time and place. P.S. Good line about the DFS sofa, LOL. I wrote back. Sorry, Uncle Claude. I was feeling very stressed when I wrote that. I've copied in my solicitor, Rupert Pilcher, so we can put something in the diary that suits everyone. I paused before adding LOL to you too. CHAPTER 22 Rupert knocked on my door around lunchtime. I was just waking up. I made him a cup of coffee. I hope I didn't make too much of a fool of myself yesterday, I said. Not at all, said Rupert. The performance was useful in its own way. It wasn't a performance. I was genuinely all over the place. Not used to the drink. You didn't put him off in the end. He was very helpful. Well, he would have walked right out if you hadn't stepped in, I said. I'm really glad to have you helping me. It's a pleasure. Did you see that email from Claude? Yes, said Rupert. I was going to suggest tomorrow lunchtime. Why not today? Well, half the day has gone already. Also, I have another suggestion for this afternoon. I've been doing some research into our friend Peter Bennington. Great stuff, Rupert. This is what I mean. You've got some really useful skills. I do, said Rupert, but on this occasion all I had to do was type his name into Facebook. Yeah, you mentioned this Facebook thing. It's all there. There's his full employment history. That's how I know it's R. Peter Bennington. He worked at Boss Locks. Then there's pictures of his family. He has a wife and children, by the way. Kids are grown up now. He's about ten years younger than your dad. I wonder how long their affair lasted for. No doubt Peter will tell us. I know where he lives. Really? He posted his address online? Not exactly. There are a couple of posts where he casually mentions the name of his street. And there's a few family shots taken in the front garden, where the number on the door is clearly visible. Nicely done. So I thought we could head over there. He doesn't work on Thursday afternoons and his wife will be out until at least 7pm. How do you know this? Again, he posts all these details on Facebook every week. Every Thursday afternoon there's a new post about what he's planting in his garden or what movie he's watching while his wife's out and about. I can't believe people actually put all of these personal details on the internet for anyone to find. I can't think of anything worse. Me neither, said Rupert. But that's what people are doing now. I got the impression this Facebook thing was just for youngsters. But it really took off while we were in prison. Everyone's on there, advertising themselves. For what reason, I really don't know. At the very least, it's useful for our investigation." I'm just not sure that we should. Surely he's a valuable contact. Oh, I'm not saying he's not, I said. I really appreciate you gathering all this information. But, well, first of all, it'll be incredibly awkward for him as much as for me. But secondly, actually, there is no secondly. It's going to be embarrassing for all concerned. Not for me, said Rupert. I could go on my own if you like. No, I said, I'll come. That was a quick turnaround. What changed your mind? Just remember something that occurred to me last night? I realised my dad was the sort of person who doesn't care what other people think of him. Then I realised that I'm like that as well, to an extent. So, I'll come along, and instead of feeling awkward, I just won't care. That's the spirit. Chapter 23 So, That's how I ended up standing outside my father's ex-lover's house, accompanied by a fake lawyer. Rupert rang the bell. We could hear the TV blaring through the living room window, so there was no doubt Peter was there. He had the TV on so loud it was drowning out the doorbell. Rupert rang the bell again. What's all that noise? I whispered. Is that really the TV? Oh, yes, said Rupert. The Exorcist, if I'm not mistaken. Shall I tap on the window? I suppose it's the only way. Rupert took a couple of steps to the right and rapped sharply on the glass. The TV noise stopped. A moment later, Peter Bennington answered the door. Then he screamed at the top of his voice and slammed the door in my face. I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting that. Rupert rang the doorbell again. No response. Rupert opened the letter box and, politely as possible, called inside. Mr Bennington, my name is Rupert Pilcher. I'm a solicitor for a firm called Harrow Associates. I can't talk to you, Bennington's voice echoed from the hallway. Anything you say to us will be treated in the strictest confidence, said Rupert. Now, I presume the reason you screamed just now was because you recognised my friend here. I realise he looks a lot like his father. I don't know what you're talking about now. Leave me alone. I don't want to make any threats, Mr Bennington. I really don't. Bennington didn't reply for a while. We waited. What kind of threats? He called back. I think you know what kind of threats I'm referring to. We have no wish to pry into your personal life, but we would like to ask some questions about Frank Burton's disappearance. I'd help if I could, he called back, but I know absolutely nothing about it. You'll be surprised at how useful you could prove, said Rupert. Come on, Mr Bennington, as I say, I really don't want to resort to threats. Bennington opened the door. Come in, he said. We sat down in the living room. The TV was freeze-framed on a particularly gruesome image. Bennington turned it off quickly. Sorry about that, he said. Think nothing of it, said Rupert. A classic film. You're a fan of horror, I said. Yes, said Bennington. Listen, I said. Let's just get this out of the way. I know you were having an affair with my dad and I'm totally cool with that. I don't feel angry with you or him. It is what it is. Thank you for that, said Bennington. I'm not going to ask you about it. It's your business. I'm interested in other things like horror films. Why? I went to that flat of yours when I was six. My dad might have told you about it. He did, yes. I remember there were a bunch of videos there. Poltergeist, Halloween, maybe The Exorcist as well, actually. Yes, they were mine, said Bennington. It's what I used to do there. It was my space to sit and do my own thing. But I don't go there anymore. Nowadays, I've got Thursday afternoons. This is my time. Away from work, away from my marriage, away from everything. I sit here and I watch horror films. And regardless of whatever else happens, this is the highlight of my week. When did you stop going to the flat? A few years ago now. It was getting too hard sneaking around behind my wife's back. Cheating on her with your dad was much easier. All I needed to do was give him a call asking me when to hook up and we'd sneak off to a hotel with the flat. I had to consult a whole bunch of other people and figure out when I could have my slot that week. Then I had to come up with a story to tell my wife about where I was going So instead of sneaking around, I thought, why don't I just talk to my wife? Why don't I just tell her I want to have my own space sometimes? So I told her I want an afternoon to myself once a week to muck about in the garden or watch a slasher film. And she said that sounded like a great idea and she'd love to do the same. So she goes out and does her own thing. I stay at home and do my thing. It's brilliant. That conversation went so well, I almost told her I'm bisexual. But what would be the point of opening that kind of worms? I don't have affairs anymore, can't be bothered with it. I successfully hid them all from her, and it's all in the past. So what's the point of her knowing? I see what you mean, I said. So how long did it last between you and my dad? Oh, well, a few years, on and off, he said vaguely. It came to a natural end. His head was somewhere else, and it seemed like he'd lost interest. He kept telling me he was too busy. When was this? Late 90s, perhaps? I haven't seen him since then. I stopped going to the flat around the same time. Do you still have a key for the place? Bennington smiled for the first time. I see where you're going with this. Whenever someone leaves the group, they have the locks changed. I might have an old key in a drawer somewhere, but it won't be of any use to you. What's the address? I can't tell you that. Why not? You have no loyalty to these guys anymore. All I want to do is go there and have a look around. I don't think you'll find what you're looking for. I won't find my dad, I said, I know that much. But maybe there's something there that'll help with my investigation. What are you investigating? I'm not really investigating his disappearance. I think we should just leave him to it. He can get in touch if he wants to, but... "'I would like to know more about him. "'What was he really like? "'What sort of person was he?' "'Are you asking me?' said Bennington. "'It was kind of rhetorical, "'but if you have an answer, I'd love to hear it.' "'Sadly, I don't,' said Bennington. "'We were workmates for a good few years, "'but in different departments, "'so our paths didn't cross very often. "'We got together at a works Christmas party. "'I was drunk. He wasn't. "'I don't remember what we talked about, "'but we ended up in bed.' And we carried on hooking up like that on a regular basis over a number of years. We didn't talk very much. I was downplaying it earlier when I said it came to a natural end. I loved him and he broke my heart. I don't suppose he meant to do that. He didn't feel the same way about me and that's all there is to it. Neither of us were willing to leave our wives. I was terrified of people finding out who I really was. With him, he kept it all private for a different reason. He said it was a matter of principle. He'd made a promise that he'd be a loyal husband. His definition of loyalty meant staying with her and remaining faithful. But he wasn't faithful, I said. His logic was, if it was with a man, it doesn't count. He made a big point of saying your mother was the only woman he'd ever been with. I burst out laughing. What's the joke? said Bennington. He used to say <laughs> he used to say the same to me, I said, but he'd say it with a daft grin on his face like it was a private joke. I've been a bit slow but the penny's finally dropped. Anyway, said Bennington, the point I was making was I know very little about your dad. I don't even know what he kept in that box. Yes, I'd like to know that too. But I quite like things that way, said Bennington. If I'd known everything about him, I probably wouldn't have fallen in love with him. I fell in love with him because he was mysterious. I love my wife for the same reason. I don't know much about her either. I mean, I only ever see one side of her. I'd imagine she's completely different when she's at work or out with her friends. I have no idea what she's doing right now and I don't want to. I like not knowing. I used to be like that. I said, but for some reason it started bothering me. And now it's not just bothering me. I feel like I have to know. I don't quite know why, but that's the way it is. So I'm going for it. That's why I'm here. I wish I could help you more. That's what everyone says. I said, who's everyone? Have you been asking? I've just been working my way through the list. Um, Claude, Olaf, Graham. Have you spoken to Omar yet? No, but I intend to. That's the best piece of advice I can give. Talk to Omar. I've got a feeling he'll be very helpful. That's good to know. Do you have his number? Well, he doesn't have a mobile. He's a bit old-fashioned like that. And no one ever answers the phone at the laundrette. Sounds cumbersome, and believe me it was. But my usual method of contacting Omar was to write him a letter. What's his address? I don't know his home one. I used to write to the laundrette with a copy of the upcoming week's rota for the flat. Then he'd write back to my work address, signing it off. Or if he wasn't happy, I'd have to redo the rota and mail him another copy. You see what I mean about all this sneaking around? It really was easier having an affair. Thanks for the tip, Peter, I said. Yes, thank you, Mr Bennington, said Rupert. Mr. Burton, I think we ought to leave our friend to the exorcist. This is, after all, the highlight of Mr. Bennington's week. Sure, I said. Sorry to barge in like this. And I apologise for the threats earlier, said Rupert. That was rather unprofessional. If I recall, said Bennington, you assured me you didn't want to threaten me. Exactly, said Rupert. That was a threat. Actually, said Bennington, there's one more thing you might be interested in. I'll see if I can find it. He left the room and didn't come back for ten minutes. It'd be funny if he never came back, I whispered. Stranger things have happened, said Rupert thoughtfully. You don't really think... I mean, he's gone very quiet... In answer to my question, Bennington returned to the room. In his hand was a folded sheet of yellowing paper. I held my breath and could visibly see Rupert doing the same. Your dad used to draw these little pictures at work and leave them lying on his desk. Oh my God. I fished this one out of the recycling once and kept hold of it. It's the only souvenir I ever got from him. I need to see it, I thought. Just give the man a chance. He's opening it up. Come on, Peter. This had better be what I think it is. Peter opened up the final fold and held the paper up to the light. Rupert gasped louder than I did. Surely it can't be, he exclaimed. It is. I said it's the bridge. I told you there was a bridge, didn't I? Well, we knew there must be. It'd be the only thing connecting the steam palace with the crumpet dome. It's like we've found a massive missing piece of the puzzle. What are you talking about? said Bennington. My dad never mentioned Nimble Land to you. Bennington shook his head. As I say, he never really told me anything. Well, this is wonderful anyway. This is the sort of thing I really wanted to discover. It's a proper insight into my dad's internal world. Right, well, I'd rather not hear about it. Of course, said Rupert, maintaining the mystery and all that. Would you mind if we take this away? Sure, said Bennington. I'm not really sentimental about these things. It's been sitting at the bottom of a drawer for years. I'm glad we came, I said. Funnily enough, so am I, said Bennington. It's been good to talk. I'm sure it's not particularly healthy, keeping all these things to myself all the time. Well, if you ever want to talk again, I said, I'll give you my number. I did so, knowing full well Peter Bennington would never call me, and I'd never call him. As pleasant as he was, there was no getting past the fact that I had the same face as the man who broke his heart. This perhaps would explain why he seemed incapable of looking me in the eye. Chapter 24 after a fun evening spent with Rupert, examining all the details of nimble land with the addition of the Secturn Bridge, which according to the small annotation was my dad's name for it, I had a good night's sleep, better than I'd slept for at least a year. I was still snoozing when Rupert knocked on my door at 11am. I'd almost forgotten we'd arranged to meet Uncle Claude for lunch. I knew this would be yet another awkward encounter but it seemed like I was getting the hang of these situations. All I needed to do was treat this like a casual catch-up. We arrived early, but Claude was already there, sipping on a cup of tea. I hadn't seen him face to face for years, not since I was still living with my parents. He looked about 20 years older than the last time I saw him, or maybe he'd always looked like that, like a proper old man. Maybe this was what my dad looked like now too. He was only a couple of years younger than Claude. Hi uncle, I said shaking his hand. This is Rupert. Pleased to meet you, Mr Burton. Mr Pilcher, likewise. We sat down opposite him. Shall we uh, order some food? said Claude. This place does a good line of bacon sandwiches. Actually I'm vegan nowadays. Oh, uh, just like your dad, he was vegetarian. I'm vegan, I said, it's different. Right, so you can't even have a cheese sandwich. Or an omelette. That's awful. I could if I wanted to. Can you have fish? I could, I said. I just think it's a shame you're missing out on all this nice grub. You can't even have milk in your tea. I choose not to. I'm concerned you might be a little low on lunch options in this place. It's fine. They do beans on toast. I'll have that. Uh, You're not one of these uh, vegetarians as well, are you, Rupert? Vegans, I corrected him. I'll have a bacon sandwich, said Rupert, and a white coffee. Sensible choice. I'll get these lads, my treat. What are you drinking, Frank? Black coffee, thanks. Claude went off to order at the counter. Sounds like you're in his good books already, I whispered. He seriously doesn't recognise you as a traffic warden guy. that's because the traffic warden guy is a different person, said Rupert. Yes, I said, you're right. Claude returned with the drinks. Can you have smoky bacon crisps? He said. Can we talk about something else? It's just a tip. You might not know this, but I noticed the other day the packet says suitable for vegans. Funny old thing. Yeah, thanks for that, Uncle Claude. I'll check it out as soon as I can. If I can step in here, Mr Burton, Rupert began. We'll have to go for first names, Rupert, said Claude. There's more than one Mr. Burton here, and I suspect a third Mr. Burton will be cropping up in conversation fairly soon. Of course, said Rupert, and as a side note, I personally recommend roast chicken flavour. Good one, said Claude. Check the packet, but I can't imagine there's any actual chicken goes into em. It's all just flavouring, isn't it? Makes you wonder what you're actually eating sometimes. What about frazzles, said Rupert. "'I will love those!' "'Can we stop talking about crisps?' I said. "'We have some serious things to discuss here.' "'Okay,' said Claude. "'I thought it might be a nice little icebreaker.' "'Fine, consider the ice broken. "'Now let's get down to business. "'We've found some things out about Dad. "'Maybe one of your friends has given you the heads up already?' "'Haven't heard from anyone in the last few days.' "'Well, I won't beat about the bush. "'We found out he was having an affair with Peter Bennington.' It's perfectly obvious you knew about this, and I understand why you didn't tell me. Well, I was born to secrecy, you see, said Claude casually. You don't seem too fussed about talking about it now, I said. Well, I think it's quite good that it's all out in the open, really. I, I don't like these family secrets, but I suppose people lead complicated lives. So, how do you feel about it all? About your dad being gay? It's none of my business, really. I've always known about it. He was out of the closet and everything very early on, and back in the 1970s, you might as well paint a target on your face. But he didn't care. He's always been like that. Didn't care what people thought of him. And luckily, he had the gift of the gab, which prevented him getting beaten up or possibly killed on a number of occasions. Any time anyone started with a verbal abuse, he'd pull out the banter out of the bag. He'd make them laugh, and they'd leave him alone. "'So, what, he had boyfriends and stuff?' Claude nodded. "'Different bloke every week for a while. "'Then I moved up north and didn't hear a great deal from him, "'but from what I understand, he ended up in a serious committed relationship. "'Nigel, his name was. "'I never met the bloke, but from what I can gather, "'they had a flat together in Basingstoke. "'This was the early days of Boss Locks. "'I was tremendously busy setting it all up, "'so I hardly paid attention to what was going on beyond my work.' Next thing I know, your dad called me up. He told me he got married to a woman and they were going to have a kid together. The waitress delivered our plates of food which gave me time to catch my breath. Tuck in, lads, said Claude. This all makes sense, I said. My mum said there was no one at their wedding. It all happened in secret. It was the total opposite of what pretty much every other gay man was doing at the time. While everyone else was marrying women and seeing their fancy men on the side, he was moving in with his boyfriend, then marrying a woman in secret. It didn't make any sense to me, but he's my little brother, and I've always felt a little protective over him. So I couldn't bring myself to be angry about it. It felt petty saying, where was my invitation then? So I offered my congratulations. I told him I couldn't wait to meet Elizabeth. And as for having a child, I wished him the best of luck. Never thought I'd see the day, but wonderful news nonetheless. That's nice of you. Don't get me wrong, said Claude. I was very concerned. This was awfully confusing, and I got the impression he was a little confused too. He was talking about moving away, getting a fresh start for him and his new family, somewhere totally different. And I just came straight out with it. I said, I'm recruiting up here, Frank. I need salesman. and you'd be perfect for that. He said he'd check with Elizabeth, but he reckoned that could definitely work. He just needed to be somewhere where no one knew him. I said, why? What have you done? He said, I got married to a woman, and everyone knows I'm gay. So I end up moving to Manchester, Claude. You have to promise me you'll never tell anyone about my past. I said, you're past. You mean you're not gay anymore? He said, it doesn't work like that. I'll always be gay. But also, I'll always be married to Elizabeth. And from now on, my sexuality will always be a secret. So I need you to keep completely quiet about it. So what else could I say? I told him that was fine, whatever he wanted. And I've honoured that promise to this day. Claude paused, peering down at the grease-spotted sheet of white bread that formed the top layer of his lunch. ''I'm going to have to stop talking,'' he said. ''It smells too good.'' Meanwhile, Rupert had already polished off his bacon sandwich and was licking his lips in approval. ''It's quite something, isn't it?'' said Claude. Rupert chuckled, apparently having lost the power of speech. ''Are you sure you don't want a bite of this?'' said Claude. He picked up the sandwich and waved it in my face. ''Smell that!'' ''You might find this hard to believe,'' I said, ''but I don't actually like bacon.'' You've never tried this bacon, though, he said, still wafting it under my nose. I don't know where they get it from, but it's seriously out of this world. Just eat it, please, I said. Maybe it's like kosher or halal or something. It's like it's been made in a different way. Kosher or halal bacon, that's a new one. Just a suggestion, Frank. Maybe it's vegan, I almost said. We munched on our lunches in contented silence for a while. "'So what happened next?' I said, as I crossed my cutlery over the empty plate. "'What do you mean?' said Claude. "'You know the rest, don't you?' "'You'd be surprised at how little I know. "'Well, by the time your folks caught round to moving up here, you'd already been born. "'You had a couple of months as a southerner before settling into your family home. "'Your dad came to work for me.' and stayed there until the day he disappeared. Literally, he was supposed to be at work the following day. I don't think I mentioned this yet, I said, but me and Rupert met Peter Bennington yesterday. Claude whistled between his teeth. You're proving to be quite the detective, aren't you, Frank? I wouldn't be surprised if you tracked down the flat as well. Not yet, I said, but we're working on it. What did you talk to Ben about? Ben? Well, that's what everyone calls Peter. Oh yeah, of course it is. Where, yeah, he was very helpful, actually. I can't remember what he said exactly. He told us about his relationship with Dad and how it ended. He remained tight-lipped about the flat, like everyone has. I like him. Yeah, he's a good bloke, said Claude. Rupert slapped his briefcase down on the desk and clicked it open. On the subject of the flat, he said, As Frank has made you aware already, I've inspected the written agreement you shared with him. It's very interesting from a legal perspective. What makes you say that? said Claude. Rupert pulled the photocopied papers from his case and spread them out on the table between the plates. Well, for one thing, he said, it's not legally binding. You could literally break every single prohibited rule in this document and not be liable for court action. This is more a code of honour. Yes, said Claude. That's exactly what it is. How much are you paying this bloke, Frank? I could have told you that for nothing. What interests me, Rupert continued, is that you appear to be willing to share information once this code of honour has been broken by a third party. For example, you once made a promise to your brother that you'd never speak about his sexuality. But once this fact was revealed to your nephew by a third party, you feel as though you can speak on the subject at length, rather than maintain the initial verbal agreement. Maintain the initial verbal agreement, parroted Claude. My point is, if you were fully committed to the promise made to Frank Senior, perhaps you would continue to make no comment to your preferred response. I suppose the way I see it is if a cat's already out of the bag, I don't want to be the man to force the, you know, the proverbial cat. What's a better analogy? Spill the beans, I suggested. Good one, said Claude. Typical vegan, but yes, I like it. So if the beans have already been spilt, I don't want to be the one to get my hands dirty, scraping them off the floor and slopping them back into the can. Well put, I said. Thanks for your help on that. So perhaps, said Rupert, we could apply the same logic to this document of yours. For example, if it turned out we already know the flat's location, presumably you'd be happy to speak to us about the specifics a little further. What specifics... Let's put it this way, I said, I know where the flat is. I took a walk down that part of town the other day, and based on what I already know, I've narrowed it down to one of three buildings on West Street. Elliot Court, Joyce Court, or Wolf Court. That's as far as you've got. There's three names of potential buildings. I already know it's the seventh floor, I said. Sixth floor, actually. Claude corrected. Now we're getting somewhere. Calm down. I can't tell you the address. It's in the agreement. Neither myself nor any other member of the group can reveal that information. What if myself or Rupert were to express an interest in becoming a member of the group? Claude laughed. Really? You really want to be part of this? Why not? For a start, it means paying an extra lot of rent. Split between seven people, it can't be that much, can it? Claude's face straightened. I'm not sure my conscience would allow me to go through with that. He said seriously, you'll be doing it for the wrong reasons. This document clearly states, said Rupert, that group members can use the premises for whatever reason they see fit. There are only two types of activity that are specifically restricted, illegal activity and sexual activity we'd be doing neither of those things. Well, by all means, you're free to join the waiting list, said Claude. Waiting list? Oh, yeah, said Claude. That flat is a stuff of legend, Frank. A couple of our current members spent years waiting for a space. The current waiting list is as long as you are. I can't just bump you up to the top, whether you're family or not. What if we agreed to join for a day and then hand it over to the next in line? It's a monthly tenancy agreement. Okay, a month then. You still can't jump the queue. If I owned the place myself, it might be different. But it's Olaf's place. And as soon as he sees your name... It doesn't have to be me, it could be Rupert. In which case, Rupert would have to sign this agreement. An agreement which is not legally binding, Rupert reminded us. The agreement states that anyone outside the group will not be admitted to the premises, so even if Olaf were to agree to this scheme of yours, only Rupert will be permitted to enter the flat. I see what you mean, I said. I know you want to go there yourself, Frank, and I'd like to help you, but I can't see a way round all these rules. One thing that appears to be missing, said Rupert, is a rule about group members sharing their keys with third parties. It states that no one else other than the group member is allowed to enter the property. This isn't a rule about entering, said Rupert. It's a rule about what happens to a group member's key when it is not in use. It says we're not allowed to duplicate them. It does indeed, but it doesn't say you're not allowed to pass them on to someone else on a temporary basis. There's a problem there, said Claude. If I gave you my key, I'd be doing so knowing full well that you'd use it to gain access to the flat. It's my understanding that despite that knowledge, you would still be honouring the terms of this agreement. What we have here, Claude, is a loophole. You said so yourself. You're willing to help if there's a way we can work around some of these rules. Another problem you may be forgetting, said Claude, is that you don't know the address and I can't tell you what it is. If it are subtle enough, we could try out the key in a few different doors, I said. We have the right floor. It's a short list of three different buildings. I'm sure we could figure it out. Yet another problem, said Claude, is that you don't know the rotor, and I can't share that with you, as it states in our agreement. It's group members only. Why do we need the rotor?" Because, said Uncle Claude, firmly tapping his fingers on the table, if a group member is occupying the flat, there are absolutely no circumstances in which they should be disturbed. I can't stress that enough. ''I'm sure we can find a way around that too,'' said Rupert. ''It's true that we can't see a physical copy of the rotor, but the way it's worded, there's nothing to prevent you from emailing us a copy.'' ''Okay,'' said Claude. ''Maybe I could agree to that, maybe, but not without you knowing the address first. I don't like the idea of you using my key to fiddle with the neighbour's locks.'' We could end up in all sorts of trouble. Really? I said. You're absolutely not going to change my mind on this prank. Let me say this though. If you find out the correct address, I'll be happy to email you a copy of the rotor and lend you my key. But I can't do that unless you know exactly where you're going first. Discretion is the bottom line here, lads. Well, that's definitely given us something to work with, I said. You've been very helpful, Uncle Claude, extremely helpful. You've given me a lot to think about. For a moment, it looked as though Claude had finally found a viable solution. Then he said, can you have cod liver oil? Why would I want to do that, I said. I know it's a fish-based product, but it's very good for you. I take it every day. Just me the world of good, I expect. I'm fine without it, I said, but thanks for the tip. I'm glad I was able to share all that stuff about your dad, he said. I feel like I've been carrying it all around for a very long time and I can finally, you know, put it down. It still doesn't make a huge amount of sense, I said, like all that stuff about my mum and dad getting together. I'd be very interested to know exactly how it happened. Your dad's never spoken about it, said Claude. Certainly not to me. All he had to say for himself was, I'm with this woman now. That's the way it is. They've always made it clear to me that I was an accident, I said. So my best assumption is that they had a one-night stand, which resulted in my mum's pregnancy. Then, for whatever reason, they agreed to stay together and bring me up. "Hm," said Claude. What does that mean, I said. They've always made it clear... But you were an accident. Yes. You're sure about that? Definitely. That's awfully strange. Why? Because you weren't. That's the one thing I do know for certain. Your dad was very clear on that. The two of them got together with the intention of having a child. That doesn't make any sense, I said. I don't know all the details, said Claude. I always got the impression your mum was less keen on the idea than your dad was. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what he told me. He said he talked her into it. Elizabeth never wanted children herself. She swore she never would. But your dad, what can I say? is a natural born sales rep. Really? Oh, absolutely. Your dad's always wanted kids. Warning them from an early age, but because of the circumstances he couldn't have one with Nigel. He just wasn't the done thing in those days, so he found himself someone to have a child with. So how come he was such a completely useless father? I really don't know, said Claude. I've thought about this an awful lot, but I've never been able to reach a satisfactory conclusion. I agree with you, it doesn't make sense. The best explanation I have is that he had his heart set on being a father until he actually became one. And no offence to you, Frank, but my feeling is, once your dad became a father, it became clear that he'd made a mistake. Mistake, I said softly. I don't mean it to sound bad. No, I said, it's good, it's really good. I just realised have been remembering it all wrong for years. I had this word spinning round and round in my head accident. That's what my parents called me when I was little. It was their private joke. They called me our little accident. But that's just the way my mind's processed it. It turns out I've been getting the word wrong the whole time. They never called me our little accident. They called me our little mistake. Are you pleased about this? said Claude. I realise it doesn't sound like a cause for celebration, I said, but this is what I've been looking for, the actual truth, and it feels like we're finally getting somewhere. Well, that's good, I suppose. Is there anything else I can help you with? You've done more than enough, I said. From my perspective, said Rupert, it would be useful to have something in writing from yourself firmly committing to the guarantee that if myself and Frank... Or able to uncover the address of your mystery flat. You will supply us with an emailed copy of the group's rotor and lend us your key. No, said Claude. You have my word of honour, that's enough. I'm happy with that, I said. It's a shame we weren't able to find a suitable loophole, said Rupert. Actually, said Claude, it's not a loophole as such, but... He hesitated. What? I said. Sorry, Frank, I'm just mentally preparing myself for what this is going to lead to. I recommend that you go and speak to Omar. What should I speak to him about? Just talk to him. Ask him the question you ask everybody else. I have a feeling he'll be very helpful. That's exactly what Peter Bennington said. Yeah, Ben's met him too. ''Hopefully we'll be in touch soon,'' said Rupert. ''I expect you will.'' Chapter 25 I was all ready to head straight off to the laundrette, but Rupert didn't seem to think it was a good idea. We'd had two people telling us that Omar was a good person to talk to, which means he wasn't the sort of person who needed a lawyer to scare him into submission. What Omar needed was a friendly face, someone easy to share his secrets with. The ideal candidate from Noddy's repertoire was, of course, the bumbling American tourist Brad Hartley. So why don't you just pop back to your hotel and get changed, I said. Then we can get this whole thing sorted out. I'm afraid it's not as straightforward as that, said Rupert. It's not as simple as changing my clothes. I have to change my personality too. I can't just switch from one to the other like Clark Kent in a phone box. These things take time. And so I had to wait until the following morning until taking further action. There were plenty of tasks awaiting my completion, all the boring bits and pieces i discussed with my parole officer, like signing up for benefits and looking for work. But my mind was too full of all this new information about my dad that I couldn't take anything else in. If there was time to kill, I'd rather not think about anything at all. So I went back to my flat, lay in my bed and listened to music until the sun went down. This YouTube thing. I discovered the other day. Had a whole bunch of stuff from bands and artists who'd records I didn't own and hadn't paid for but knew and loved nonetheless and now I suddenly had the ability to play whichever track I wanted as many times as I wanted. I hammered through The Specials, The Slits, Baba Mal, Billie Holiday, Underworld, The Orb, The Kinks, Omni Trio, Happy Mondays, Jeff Mills, Asian Dub Foundation, KLF, Square Pusher, Africa Bambata, The Ramones, Patti Smith, Carter USM, Minty, Toots and the Maytals, Fela Kuti, Panacea and Nina Simone. Just by clicking on the suggested links I discovered a whole bunch of other stuff I didn't even know about at the drive-in and you will know us by the Trail of Dead, Roots Maneuver. Grinder man, Laura Marling. I went to sleep that night somewhat contented, a little overwhelmed, having almost but not quite forgotten about our planned meeting with Omar. The following morning, Brad Hartley arrived at my door, wearing a t-shirt with a London Underground logo on it and a Legoland Windsor baseball cap. Great to see you again, he greeted. Hi, Brad, I said, come on in. After a brief strategy meeting, we decided a united front would be the best means of approach. We'd go to the Laundrette together, ask to see the manager and take it from there. As it turned out, we didn't need to ask. We stepped through the door and right in front of us was a smartly dressed Asian man of around the same age as my dad, sitting on a plastic chair, watching the machines spin. We were the only people in the room, so this seemed like a perfectly good place to have a chat. Hello, I said. Are you Omar? Omar stood up, smiled, and shook me by the hand. Frank Burton, Jr.? That's right. Did Uncle Claude say we were coming? No, said Omar. I recognise you. What can I do for you? Er, well, this is my friend Brad Hartley. Pleased to meet you, sir. "'said Brad, returning Omar's handshake with a vigorous two-handed grasp. "'Take a seat, gentlemen,' said Omar. "'We pulled up a couple of chairs. "'I'll come straight to the point,' I said. "'I've been meeting with a few of your associates, "'trying to get some more information about the secret flat my dad used to visit. "'I understand you're still a member of the group?' "'Yes, I am,' said Omar. "'What's the address?' I said casually. I received an equally casual response. Forty-six Wolf Court. Wow, I said that was easy. Aren't you breaking the group's rules by telling me that? I am, said Omar. But a much more important principle for me is not telling lies. If someone asks me a direct question, I respond with an honest answer. The group members know this. They knew this when they put the group rules together. I see, so it's not so much of a secret from your point of view. On the contrary, it's a very well-kept secret. I've successfully hidden my use of the flat for over 20 years. If my wife asked me, do you have a secret flat, I would say yes. But she's never asked that question. Interesting, I admire your commitment to your principles. Thank you. I was going to grill you a little bit more, but actually I can't think of anything else you could help me with. We've made some real progress here. Thanks, Omar. We'll let you get on with your work. Oh, I'm not working today, said Omar. I'm just sitting here watching the machine spin. I find it very therapeutic. Right, well, we'll let you get on with that. But what it's worth, said Omar, I really didn't know your dad, but I know how fond Claude was of him and I saw how upset he was when his brother vanished. I hope you can find him. I heard myself say, Thanks. I hope so too. Chapter 26 It took a day and a half to organise getting the keys from Uncle Claude, and agreeing to a slot when no group members would be there. I spent most of that time in a state of incurable restlessness. I couldn't sit still. Listening to music wasn't going to help this time. I went on a series of long walks, exploring different bits of Manchester, staying well away from the flat until it was time for our scheduled visit. When it was almost time to go, there was a knock at my door. I answered, expecting to see Brad in another one of his souvenir caps. But he wasn't wearing one this time. His grey fringe was hanging naturally over his forehead. He was wearing a regular pair of jeans and a plain white shirt. Brad, I said. Not this time. It's Noddy. Wow, good to see you, mate. You're not in character. I don't need to be. It's just you and me now. I breathed out, feeling the ball of nervous energy being released into the air. Are you okay? said Noddy. ''Great, thanks,'' I said. ''It's just really comforting that you're here, as you. ''I've been feeling like I'm not ready yet, like I don't know if we should be going there at all, ''but suddenly, I am ready. In that case, let's go.'' We took the half-hour walk to Wolfcourt in silence. In the lift up to the sixth floor, I offered Noddy the key and told him to go in first. He said, ''No, you should do it. This is a momentous moment.'' and it's yours. I realised I was still scared. It was almost as though I were expecting my dad to be sitting there on the couch. I opened the door. The place was a lot smaller than I remembered, but otherwise everything was almost exactly the same as it had been all those years ago. Same carpet, same wallpaper, same cupboards, same furniture in the exact same positions. Even the pinboard in the kitchen hadn't changed. The names on the rota were different now. Claude, Olaf, Omar, Martin, Graham and Sheila. I wondered who Sheila was and how she'd become involved in this mysterious men's group. The television had been updated for a flat screen one, but it still had the old VHS recorder plugged into it. Peter Bennington's horror films remained lined up on the shelf. Unbelievably, the collection still included the film Jiminy Cricket's Christmas. Was this one of the group members' secret guilty pleasure? As I've said, I can no longer vouch for the quality of this particular cartoon. Weird how they've left all of Bennington's things here, I said. As far as we know, he hasn't been a member for years. Perhaps they weren't sure what to do with him, said Noddy. There's a general rule within that document about not touching another group member's things. In which case, I said thoughtfully... Noddy already knew what I was thinking. Let's take a look, he said. There was a storage cupboard embedded in the wall between the two bedrooms. It was padlocked shut. We didn't have a key, but Noddy found a screwdriver in the kitchen, which would easily take the latch off. While he was fiddling with it, I found a large suitcase under one of the beds. The case had Sheila's name on the top. It was closed with a combination lock. I couldn't help myself trying out one, two, three, four. It clicked open. I unzipped it and peered at the various items of brightly coloured equipment inside. Right, so that's what Sheila gets up to, I said out loud. Looks like fun. I wondered if masturbation counted as sexual activity or if the contents of Sheila's case were exempt from the group's rules. I hope for her case, she wouldn't get in trouble if anybody else cracked her security code. ''How's it going?'' I called through to Noddy. ''Almost there,'' he said. A moment later, the padlock clanked to the floor and the hinges on the cupboard made a violent creak. There was a whole bunch of junk inside carrier bags full of old teacups and kitchen utensils, an empty bird cage filled with plastic ornamental fruit, stacks of yellowing newspapers, it reminded me of my parents' house. I didn't dwell on that comparison for long because after pulling a couple of bags out, it was clear that underneath the bird cage was a large black box with a lid. We hauled it out and carried it into the living room. It didn't have my dad's name on, but it seemed obvious, based on where it had been stashed, that this was, as various group members had called it, that box. "'You know what I'm thinking?' said Noddy. "'I'm thinking the same,' I said. "'But really, I don't think this box has anything to do with Nimbleland. "'It's too big for a start.' "'It might not be drawings or maps,' said Noddy. "'What if he was making a scale model?' There's only one way to find out, I said. I ran my hands over the smooth surface of the lid before pulling it off. Sitting neatly in the box was a record player, a stack of vinyl singles, a tape deck, headphones and a microphone on a stand. A smaller box full of cassette tapes was resting on top. I wasn't expecting that, I said. Hmm, me neither. Is this really my dad's stuff? That's his handwriting on the tapes, Noddy confirmed. I take it he was a music fan. I have no idea, I said. He never mentioned. I pulled out a handful of vinyls. I hadn't heard of all of them, but the names I recognised were, to my mind, impossibly cool. Nick Cave in the Bad Seeds, Cocteau Twins, A Guy Called Gerald, Portishead. Obviously he was a secret music fan, I said. And a secret DJ, Noddy added. I pulled out the box of tapes. Each tape had an individual handwritten date, covering the mid-80s to early 90s. I plugged the cassette player into the spare socket next to the TV and stuck it on the coffee table, which I recognised as the place I ate all my meals for a week when I was six. I picked a tape at random and popped it in. The tape was halfway through, so it started in the middle of a track. Familiar sounding synths blasted through the small plastic speaker. I was trying to remember where I knew the track from when the music stopped and my dad's voice answered the question. Craft work there, said the voice, recognisably Frank Senior, with something of a transatlantic twist. If you've just joined us, welcome to Apartment 24. I've been getting in the party mood with the electronic vibes. But as always, it's time to change direction. Let's have a bit of Tom Waits. The next track came on. I can't believe my dad was cool, I said. This is cool, said Noddy. Sorry, I don't know a thing about music. Let me tell you, I said, this is unbelievable. I don't even mean cool as in fashionable. I just mean it's really, really good. It's a shame he chose to keep all this to himself. It's the sort of thing we could have really bonded over. The impression I get, said Noddy, is that your dad chose not to share this side of himself with other people, not because he was ashamed of it, but because it was his private pleasure. I'm not sure he actually wanted to be a professional radio DJ, but he got a kick out of using this place to pretend to be one. It's like another life altogether. Yeah, I said, I think you might be right. We listened to the music while staring thoughtfully at the tape deck. This chap doesn't sound well, said Noddy. It's Tom Waits, I said. Who's that? Just trust me, OK, this is good. And he's a professional recording artist? I grinned. ''Yes, Grandad, he's a professional recording artist.'' My dad's voice returned. ''Tom Waits there. We're a few seconds away from yet another change of direction because that's what we do here at Apartment 24, right?'' There was some light rustling and clanking in the background as my dad fumbled over changing the record on his single turntable. ''Let's take a look at the weather,'' he continued. Just glancing out of the window, it's a bit cloudy here in Manchester. Might get a bit of rain later, I hope the sun's out, wherever you are. We couldn't help glancing out of the window ourselves. The same window my dad had been glancing out of when he recorded this tape, on the 3rd of March, 1987. The sun was out. Noddy was groaning. He'd been groaning for a while, but I'd only just noticed. Are you okay, mate? I said. I turned to see him lying on the floor. There had been no sound of him falling. He must have just lay down himself. He was breathing heavily, clutching his chest. Noddy, I said. Talk to me, mate. What's up? Noddy shook his head. Both hands on his chest now. Breaths getting fiercer and shorter. I pulled my phone out and dialed 999. Ambulance, please. We're at 24 Wolf Court, sixth floor flat. Yes, he's breathing, but he's struggling with it. I can't tell 100%, but I think he's having a heart attack. Sorry, he's a friend of mine, but I don't actually know his name. I know his nickname, but that's probably no good to you. Please, just hurry up. As I ended the call, I saw Noddy reaching for a thin piece of string that was wrapped around his wrist, hidden within a shirt cuff. On the string was a small blue button. He pressed it then flopped back onto the floor, hands no longer on his chest, lungs no longer sucking up any air. "'What's that?' I said, "'A panic alarm?' Noddy didn't respond. I climbed on top of him and felt for a pulse. Couldn't find one. I had no idea what I was supposed to do next. Mouth-to-mouth? CPR? I had a very distant memory of being first aid trained at university, but my principal memory of that afternoon was watching squirrels through the window.' I heard a vehicle slamming on its brakes outside. Impressive response time from the ambulance, I thought. I opened up the window, stuck my head through the net curtains, looking down at the courtyard below. It wasn't an ambulance. It was a transit van. Two men jumped out, dressed in black from head to foot, with balaclavas covering their faces. They darted into the building, and moments later, they'd broken through the door to the flat. What happened next took a matter of seconds. I was frozen to the spot, watching as the two masked men hauled Noddy up off the floor and carried him right out. I turned to the window and watched as they loaded him into the back of the van and sped off round the corner. When the ambulance crew arrived, they found me sitting in the corner with tears in my eyes, unable to speak. It took me a while to come round from this state. I told them everything I knew, which wasn't very much. My friend, whose name I didn't know, had had a heart attack. He had some kind of device on him which he'd used to summon a pair of masked men who arrived almost immediately and effectively kidnapped him. That was genuinely all I knew. There was nothing I could do to help them find Noddy. I didn't know where he lived. All I knew was he'd recently been in prison, so the prison system would have a record of him. Perhaps this is a matter for the police to investigate, suggested the paramedic. Yeah, I said. I agree. I'll call them. The ambulance crew had to race off and deal with another emergency. I never called the police about Noddy. I didn't think he'd want me to. Maybe the ambulance crew reported the incident, but if they did, no one ever got back in touch with me. Somehow, I managed to put everything back the way I found it. My dad's box, the latch on the cupboard door. The masked men had literally broken the door down, which I'd somehow have to explain to Uncle Claude but I didn't have time to worry about how all of this looked to other people. Noddy was dead, and at that moment in time, I wouldn't have minded if the earth had swallowed me whole and left my bones in the ground. Chapter 27 I didn't talk to anyone for a long time after that. I barely left my flat for a number of weeks. I still had a small sum of money stashed away, which covered my living costs in the short term. The worst thing was, I didn't know whether Noddy were alive or dead. I knew the chances of him having survived were minimal, unless that van happened to have a defibrillator in the back. Actually, there were lots of sentences beginning with the words, the worst thing was. The worst thing was, the last conversation I had with Noddy ended up with me making a joke about his age. I'd never done that before. He was never a father figure, and he never looked down on me. We were always equals. The worst thing was, I lost my only real friend. I didn't have a single friend left in the world, and I couldn't cope with the idea of trying to find a replacement. The worst thing was, there would never be a funeral. Burying him wouldn't have stopped me grieving, But at the very least, it might have helped me come to terms with it on some superficial level. The worst thing was, I hadn't just lost Noddy. I'd lost Rupert and Brad and Trevor and Eggnog. They were all people too. And what about all his other invented personalities? The ones he'd mentioned in his stories who I'd never got to meet. The worst thing was, I didn't really know Noddy at all. I knew the people he was pretending to be but I didn't know anything about the real person. He never mentioned his childhood or revealed even the tiniest detail about his personal life. The worst thing was, Noddy was dead. Noddy was dead and I was alive. I didn't want to talk to anyone about it. No one else knew him. No one else would understand. No one would believe me even if I told them. And so I stayed at home. I didn't go out. I didn't talk to anyone and I didn't do anything. One morning I woke up and I realised I was getting really bored. I had some breakfast and went out for a walk. I went to the job centre and sat down with an employment advisor. I told her I'd just come out of prison and had recently been bereaved and in all honesty I was still coming to terms with my dad's disappearance a couple of years ago. But it was time to get out of the house and do something to take my mind away from all these things. I didn't care what work it was, I'd work for whoever was willing to take me on. She pointed out that perhaps we should focus on the positives. I was a university graduate with plenty of office experience. And a criminal record, I said. Would you consider working in a butcher's shop? She asked out of the blue. Sure, I said. I don't eat meat, but I'd be happy to sell it. She passed on the number. I gave them a call and two weeks later, there I was, chopping up steak with a massive knife. A couple of weeks later, I met a girl called Heidi in a coffee shop and fell in love with her. She moved in with me. But that's a whole other story. I won't talk about that here. I'm mentioning Heidi because more than anything else, she helped me to usher in the next phase of my life. She helped me forget all the things I'd previously been obsessed with but not necessarily in the healthiest of ways. Instead of being obsessed with Noddy's death, I was obsessed with Heidi. Instead of being obsessed with my dad's disappearance, I was obsessed with Heidi. The butcher's shop didn't last long. I got an admin job for a bit, then moved on to being a support worker, having bluffed my way in by pretending I didn't have a criminal record. Heidi and I were together for two years, I was sad when she left, but at the same time, it was a huge relief. I realised I'd spent most of that last two years frustrated and unhappy. I needed to be on my own, either until I learned to stop being so obsessive, or for the rest of my life, either was fine with me. I was happier on my own. I barely thought about my dad anymore. Visiting the flat had marked the end of our investigation. I'd found out everything I needed to know about my dad. While there were still a few unanswered questions like, where did he disappear to? I was happy not to have an answer. If Noddy hadn't died, perhaps I would have felt differently. But there's not much point speculating on that. Sometime in March 2009, I had a week off work. I wasn't earning much, so I couldn't afford to go anywhere, which left me with very little to do. One day, I was taking a walk through town when I started thinking about my mum. I wondered how she was doing. Was my dad's old junk still piled up from floor to ceiling? How was she spending her days? I literally hadn't seen or spoken to her since our chat three years previously, where she told me she knew my dad was having an affair. I wondered how she'd react if she knew all the things Noddy and I had discovered. How much did she know already? She must have known my dad was gay, or maybe she didn't. She knew about the flat but did she know what he did there and would she care? I was about 15 minutes away from her house so I decided to go there and surprise her. Maybe she'd be interested to know what I'd been up to recently. I hadn't been doing anything too exciting but my writing had been going quite well. My first book, A History of Sarcasm, was due to be published later that year. Maybe that would be of interest to her or maybe it wouldn't. Just a casual visit anyway, no big deal. I knocked on the door. I heard some movement inside. There was the sound of a glass being broken and then hastily swept up. I knocked again. My mum answered the door a little while later, looking like she'd just woken up. Oh, she said, it's you. Hi, I said. She covered her eyes, shielding herself from the sun. I suppose you'd better come in, she said. I had an immediate answer to my earlier question about the state of my mum's house. There were still piles of boxes and crates wherever you looked. She was still using that broken photocopier as a coffee table. I wondered when she'd last dusted or opened the curtains. I suppose you'll want a coffee or something, she said. That's the sort of thing I'm supposed to offer in these situations, isn't it? I don't mind, I said. Don't worry about it. That's your way of saying you want one, isn't it? She said, and disappeared into the kitchen. She returned with a black tea with three sugars, having misremembered eggnog's preference as my own. So, what can I do for you? She said. Nothing, really, I said. I was in the area. I thought I'd just pop round and see how you are. I'm fine, she said. I waited for her to ask if I was fine too, but my mum seemed happy to stay silent. Also, I added, I thought I might fill you in on some of the things I found out about my dad a couple of years ago. You remember I was investigating? Yes, she said. As it happens, I found out some very interesting things. Would you like to hear about them? She shrugged. I don't want to tell you anything you don't want to hear, I said. I'd be surprised if you've uncovered anything I don't already know, she said, so fire away, I won't be shocked. Okay, I said, so I take it you know he's bisexual. I wouldn't say bisexual, she said. What would you say? I'd say he has absolutely no interest in women, not in that way. So he wasn't interested in you? He was interested in me, yes, but ours was never a straightforward marriage. I've always known about his preferences and he's always known about mine. What do you mean? It's complicated. I realise it's awkward talking to me about it. I'm your son and everything. Technically that's true, she said. But although you grew in my womb, I don't really think of you as my son. I think of you as Frank's son. Right, I said. That's interesting. Uncle Claude mentioned something. I'm sorry to bring him into this. I kind of forced him into talking about you and my dad and I was surprised to hear that even though you were the one who raised me, it was my dad's idea to have a child. From what I can gather, he convinced you it was a good idea. Exactly, she said. I don't mind hearing all this, by the way. I understand that perhaps you would have preferred it if I'd never been born and I totally accept that that's the way you feel. In a way, I'm uniquely privileged bearing in mind there must be many other parents who feel the same way, but will never dream of proclaiming it out loud. I appreciate you saying that, she said. Another thing, I said, my dad's secret flats. I found out what he did when he went there. Would you like to know about that, or do you already know? I know he had a boyfriend, she said. I'm not particularly interested in hearing those details. It's got nothing to do with me. You're right, I met the boyfriend in person myself, but their affair didn't take place in that flat. My dad had this hobby, I suppose you could call it. I'm really not interested, said my mum. "Okay. I think you should leave now. "Okay. Off you go. Was it something I said? No. So, what have I done wrong? You were born, said my mum. Okay, I said, as I've said, I'm totally fine with the idea that you prefer that I'd never been born. Then what are you doing here? She snapped. Well, I like I say, I was in the area and you remember when you left home and I drove you to university and I gave you that little speech. I chose those words very carefully. I said, it would be wonderful if you never came home again. What part of it would be wonderful if you never came home again, don't you understand? Well, I took it as more of a suggestion than an instruction. It was not a suggestion. So what are you saying? Let me spell this out to you in plain English, Frank, and I hope you'll actually listen and digest what I'm saying to you. Go ahead, I said. My mum rose to her feet, stumbling and steadying herself on the photocopier. Then she pushed the photocopier over onto its side and kicked it. She picked up one of the cardboard boxes of odds and ends and spilled it onto the carpet. She snatched up my cup of tea and smashed the cup against the wall. Then she said, you ruined my life. Did I really? I said, yes, you did. I could have been an entirely different person. I could have been anyone I wanted to be. Instead I was your mother. I was your mother for 18 years and by the time you flew the nest it was too late. I'd already resigned myself to being your mother. That's all I ever was. That's all I was ever allowed to be. Frank Burton's wife and Frank Burton's mother. Frank Burton's wife And Frank Burton's mother, get out of my house, Frank Burton, and never come back, you hear me? Get out of my house and never, 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 never come back. Can you do that for me? Yes, I said quietly, I can do that. There was just one more thing I was wondering. You will have to keep on wondering because I have absolutely nothing else to say to you. Mum, I said. Don't call me that. Don't ever use that name again. My name is Elizabeth. Elizabeth, I said, I'm worried about you. You're drinking too much. It seems like you ought to be going out and doing things, seeing other people, instead of sitting all day in this pigsty of a house. I drink, she said because of you. I don't go out and see other people because of you. I sit here all day and not a minute goes by where I don't think. I wonder if that son of mine is going to come knocking on my door again, asking questions again, asking for cups of tea again, instead of leaving me alone. I don't know how else I'm supposed to say this, Frank. Leave me alone. Get out of this house and never, never, never come back again. Why are you still sitting there? Because I'm concerned. If you're really concerned, you will leave this house immediately. How are you living? I said. I mean, how can you afford to pay for all your bottles of gin, your heating bills? Did my dad leave some money behind? My mum sat down on the floor and buried her head in her hands. Mum? I said. I mean, Elizabeth? I thought she was crying at first, but it turns out her shoulders were shaking with laughter. Finally, she cackled, the truth comes out, he wants to know about money. Not for me, I said, for you. I'm worried that you might not be financially stable. In answer to your question, she said, your dad didn't leave me anything. There was never anything for him to leave. I own this house outright mine is the only name on the deeds. Don't ask me why, but from day one, everything has been in my name, even the car. Your dad has never owned a thing in his life. So you got money, I said, you can support yourself. For your information, she said, I've made a will. It specifies that you are entitled to nothing. You hear me, Frank, nothing at all. When I die, this house will be auctioned off and the proceeds donated to the animal shelter. Fine, I said, if that's what you want. I didn't realise you cared about animals that much. I don't, she chuckled. But the funny thing is, I care about animals more than I care about you. Now, once again, before I call the authorities, please, please, please get out of my house and never, never, never come back. So that's what I did. Chapter 28 I managed to stagger home. I lay down in bed. I stayed there for a day. I spent the remainder of the week failing to do various things. I tried writing, but couldn't get into it. I tried reading, but my mind kept wandering off. I tried to exercise, but couldn't be bothered. I tried to stop thinking about my encounter with my mum and failed at that too. As soon as my holiday was done, I threw myself into my day job. I took on extra shifts, working as many hours as possible, then sleeping the rest of the time. I thought about my mum as little as I possibly could. What was the point of thinking about her anyway? I was never going to see her again. She'd made it pretty clear that's the way she wanted things to be. Six weeks went by. I was obliged to take a couple of days off work due to the rotor being full. I spent an afternoon alone in my flat, once again attempting and failing to write. That evening, I gave Uncle Claude a call. It had been a year or so since I've seen him last, when Heidi and I ran into him in a supermarket. Claude was a total embarrassment. He spent the whole time staring at Heidi's chest. Every now and again, during our super polite conversation, he'd mumble something incomprehensible to himself, and he kept on making remarks about me being vegan like I was a shame on the family or something. I made an excuse about being in a hurry and disappeared. He'd called and texted a few times since then, but I chose to completely ignore him. Claude answered the phone after one and a half rings. Frank, he said breathlessly. Hiya, I said, don't worry, it's not an emergency. It's good to hear your voice. Good to hear yours too. Sorry I haven't been in touch for a while. Let's forget about that. He said. Are you on the toilet? I said. Er, no. Yes, you are. This can wait. Call me back when you're decent. Uncle Claude called me back ten minutes later. Sorry about that. He said. It's fine. I said. I just have this thing about talking to people when they're doing their business. I have a sixth sense for these things. Not a bad party trick. Seriously? I beg to differ. It's a horrendous party trick. We laughed. (laughs) I suppose you're right. He said. ''Imagine,'' I said, ''being at a party and...'' <laughs> ''Anyway, how are you?'' ''I'm the same as always,'' said Claude. ''Business is going well, still stamp collecting. I've started going to stamp collecting exhibitions and things like that. Just as a sideline. I won't bore you with the details.'' ''You're boring me already, mate.'' We laughed again. Yeah, this is good, Frank,'' he said. ''I like a bit of banter. You're very good at it. How's the missus?'' ''What, you mean Heidi?'' No, we're not together any more. I'm sorry to hear that, Frank. She seemed very nice. She was very nice, I agreed. That wasn't the problem. It's complicated, but it's for the best. Complicated? That's usually a coded way of saying there was somebody else involved. I wish it were more gossip-worthy, I said, but no, it's a case of two people caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. You make yourself sound like you're a wrongfully convicted criminal. Let's not bring that up again. We laughed a little less heartily this time. Listen, I said, I don't really know why I called you today, but I think I need to talk to you about something that happened between me and my mum. Well, thanks for thinking of me. I went to see her a few weeks ago. I would have done it sooner, but I've been distracted with this and that. I wanted to talk through some of the things I discovered about my dad. It was all going reasonably well until, I don't know... I must have said something to upset her and she snapped, exploded more like, told me she never wants to see me again, all that sort of thing. So I left and we haven't spoken since, probably never will. I mean, I can't really think of a way the two of us can sit together in the same room, not unless she has a change of heart. This must be uh, horribly difficult for you, Frank, said Claude. I suppose it is, I said, The weird thing is, I was absolutely fine not being on speaking terms with her until now. I've barely seen her since I left home. I was a teenager then. I'm going to be 30 soon. If you don't care all that much, then what's the problem? said Claude. The problem is, I said, I'm starting to realise I've been looking in the wrong direction. I invested a hell of a lot of time into digging into my dad's old secrets. Now it feels like I should have spent that time paying attention To the parent who didn't disappear, the parent who actually behaved like a parent, the parent who, as we speak, is probably sitting at home on her own, drinking herself into oblivion, with no one telling her to stop. It's funny you should say that, said Uncle Claude. Really? Yes, it is. As it happens, I saw your mum last week. She was out walking her dog. Walking her what? That's exactly what I thought. I had no idea she had a dog, but apparently she does. And I'll tell you something else. She was smiling. Right. Not smiling out of politeness the way people do. She was actually smiling before she even saw me. It was right there on her face. If anything, seeing me made her a little bit less happy. But she was chirpy nonetheless. My mum was chirpy, I said. You sure it was actually her? Oh, it was definitely her. She recognised me. Asked me how I was doing. We had a nice chat. I don't remember the last time we did that. She's always been a bit of a closed book. And the only conversation we've had in recent years have been about your dad. So how's she doing? Very well. She seemed very pleased about having a dog. And taking it out for walks and all of that. She's got cats as well. Cats? I said in that house you could lose several cats in those massive mounds of garbage. That's exactly what I said. It turns out your mum's tidied the place up. Well, she's got a house clearance company to do it. Several van loads carted off to the tip. You can see the carpets again. Sometimes she, and I, found this rather strange. Why, what did she say? Sometimes she dances around the house. She'll dance and dance and dance. That's what she said. Dance and dance and dance. Those were her exact words. I thought something must have happened to bring about this kind of change in her life. She's never struck me as the sort of person who dances around the house. She didn't say what had happened, but she did mention she felt like she'd been reborn. Reborn? Reborn, yeah, reborn as herself or something. That's great, I said. So what's happened to her? said Claude. I told you, she threw me out of the house, disowned me, told me to never come back. It's a shame she chose to do it in the way she did, but it's good that it's made her so happy. But what do you ever do to her? Nothing, I said. It's like you said, she never wanted to be a mother. It obviously didn't suit her. I have to say, said Uncle Claude, on behalf of the family, I think both of your parents have completely failed to appreciate what they had. You were a remarkable young man, And if you were my child, I'd have never rejected you in the way that they did. Is that really what you think? I said. Of course. It feels good to have a writer in the family. I can't wait to read your book when it's available. How do you know about my book? I said. i like to keep an eye on your website. Right, well that's good. Let me know what you think of it. I'd better go anyway. More writing to do, you know. Don't be a stranger, said Claude. I won't be, I said. I mean, I won't leave it so long before calling next time. When I ended the call, I had to take a few breaths while I processed what I'd heard. I sat at my desk and tried to write, but it soon became clear there was no way that was happening today. It was good to have learnt about how my mum was doing. All I wanted to do was call and congratulate her, but obviously that would have been a terrible mistake. She was living her new life in the knowledge she would never see me again. Just seeing my number popping up on her phone could potentially reverse the whole thing. There was a whole host of unanswered questions still swimming around my head about my parents' marriage, about how they got together, and why they stayed together for so long. It seemed like these matters would have to remain a mystery. But I couldn't help asking myself one more question, a question that I did have an answer for. What would Noddy do? Faced with these apparently unanswerable questions, Noddy would do whatever he could to get that information. And so I was able to fully justify what I did next. I wasn't acting irrationally or irresponsibly. I was honouring Noddy's memory. Something like that anyway. Chapter 29 The following day, I hired a car with blacked out windows and parked across the road from my mum's house. The plan was simple. I was going to sit and watch for a while. I wouldn't get out of the car at any point. If it became clear that my presence was arousing suspicion, I'd make a hasty retreat. The first thing I noticed was the lawn. The candy floss machines had all been cleared and the grass was starting to grow again. The living room curtains were wide open. From what I could see, the room inside was barely recognisable. The walls had been bare and yellowing since my dad took all the framed photos. Now my mum had repainted with vibrant pink and put up various Dali and Picasso prints. I couldn't see anything else. I waited for an hour. Then my mum emerged from the house with her dog a little white one which reminded me of Snowy from Tintin. "'Come on, Snowy,' I heard her say brightly. She walked right past the car. When she disappeared around the corner, I decided to break my own rules just for a minute. I got out of the car and scurried across the road. I hopped across the lawn and peered through the window. The living room really had been transformed. It looked about five times larger. There was a proper coffee table Brand new lamps and armchairs. There was a man and woman sitting together on the couch. They appeared to be deep in conversation and didn't see me standing there. I darted back across the road and into my car. My mum having animals in the house was one thing, but people. Somehow this was more of a surprise. Clearly my mum had some kind of connection with this couple but they didn't look like the sort of people my mum would be friends with. For a start, they were human beings. I'm not sure my mum actually had any human friends. She used to when I was a kid. She'd spend hours on the phone, and often there'd be women of my mum's age popping round for a drink. Sometimes we'd go to the park with my mum's friends and their kids, like with one big family. Then during my teenage years, these visits occurred less and less, She hardly touched the phone, she talked a lot less and drank a lot more. By the time I left home, I was pretty sure my mum was a recluse. So it didn't make sense that suddenly she should be friends with what looked like a young professional couple who were all dressed up for work. Could they have been estate agents? Was she selling the house? It didn't look that way. There was no sign up. And if these people were total strangers, surely she wouldn't pop out to walk the dog, leaving them in the living room. My mum returned 15 minutes later. As she did so, a taxi pulled up on the driveway. The young couple appeared at the front door. They smiled and shook my mum's hand before loading a pair of trolley cases into the back of the taxi. As the taxi whisked them away, my mum pulled out a fold-up chair and sat in the garden reading a book. I started feeling rather uncomfortable about sitting there watching her. I knew she couldn't see me through the blacked out window, but nonetheless I was paranoid about being caught. I couldn't just drive off though. I'd make it immediately obvious there'd been someone sitting in the car the whole time. I'd have to wait until she went outside. My mum laughed out loud, covering her mouth like she'd heard a dirty joke. I wondered what she was reading, but couldn't see the cover. Half an hour later, she popped inside the house. I waited until the door was closed before driving back to the car rental place. I walked home and made some notes about the things I'd seen that day. That is, after all, what Noddy would have done. Perhaps I should have left it there, but it seemed like none of my questions had been answered. In fact, there were even more questions than before. So I did what Noddy would have done and went off to the fancy dress shop. I bought myself a ginger wig and false beard. The beard looked very convincing, and covered a large portion of my face. From a nearby sports shop, I bought a tracksuit and baseball cap. I attempted to further disguise myself by adopting a different kind of walk, but couldn't figure out a way to make it seem convincing. I went to a mobility shop and bought a pair of crutches. I waited until it was dark before donning my disguise. I jogged across town with the crutches tucked under my arm, then hobbled casually along my mum's street. The curtains remained wide open, with all the lights on in the living room. There seemed to be some movement inside, some flicker of light like the TV was on. I knew my mum didn't have a TV. I moved a little closer. The flickering stopped. I crouched down on the lawn, The upstairs windows were open, and I could hear heavy footsteps on the floorboards. The footsteps pounded down the stairs. Instinctively, I ducked down beneath the living room window and held my breath. There was some kind of commotion. After a while, I couldn't resist lifting my head and peering through the window. My mum didn't see me because she had her eyes closed. She was dancing. There was no music playing. She didn't have earphones or anything. The music was in her mind. She twirled, bounced, skipped, waved her arms in the air with the most serene smile I'd ever seen on her face. On a technical level, she was a bad dancer. But she was peaceful and she was happy and she was absolutely beautiful. I noticed there was an empty bottle of gin on the coffee table. I could have stayed there for the rest of the night, but I could sense my mum was moments away from opening her eyes. I'd seen everything I needed to. Silently, I scooped up the crutches from the lawn, took them under my arm and ran away. Chapter 30 I was at work for the next few days, which provided a nice distraction. I could feel myself getting obsessed again, constantly dreaming up theories about my mum and her mysterious visitors. On my next day off, I hired a different car. I couldn't get blacked out windows this time, so I wore my ginger wig and beard. I parked up across the street. My mum passed by on a regular dog walk. She returned, thankfully not sitting in the garden again, which would have been too close for comfort. A couple of hours later, an elderly man of East Asian descent, arrived in a taxi. He knocked on the door. My mum greeted him with a handshake and invited him inside. Again, this was weird, not because of the man's age or ethnicity. There was no reason why my mum couldn't be friends with an old Korean dude. It was simply the fact that he was a human being, and seeing my mum mixing with other human beings wasn't something I was used to. But maybe... That was because I'd never spied on her before. To be fair, I didn't really know her at all, so anything was possible. Perhaps she was living an entirely different life to the one I'd assumed. I waited for hours with no sign of movement within the house, other than the occasional sight of the old man peering through one of the upstairs windows. A little while later, a young, dreadlocked girl with a guitar slung over her shoulder arrived on foot. She knocked on the door. My mum greeted her with a handshake and welcomed her inside. Ten minutes later, my mum took the dog out for a walk, leaving her two guests behind. She glanced at me as she walked past, but happily, my disguise appeared to be sufficient. I needed to leave though. If I was still there when she returned from her walk, it was bound to look dodgy. What should I do next? What would Noddy do? I was pretty sure, I knew the answer. The following morning, the young dreadlocked musician left my mum's house. I was lurking at the end of a street in my tracksuit and fake hair. ''Hey,'' I called to her. ''You got a minute?'' ''Sorry, dude,'' she said, and carried on walking. ''It's important,'' I said. ''Okay,'' said the young woman, looking me up and down for a moment. ''Make it quick. I'm late for my rehearsal.'' ''I'll come straight to the point. How do you know Elizabeth?'' Who's that? The woman whose house you stayed in last night. Alright, I don't know her at all. It's an Airbnb. Air what? What's that? I don't have time to explain to you what Airbnb is, dude. Look it up. Okay, thanks, I will. I'll let you go. Just one more thing. Yes. Please don't tell her I was asking. She really wouldn't like it. Don't worry about it. I was only booked in for one night. Well, if you happen to go back there, sure, I won't mention it. I appreciate that. As the young woman walked away, I congratulated myself on my performance, although maybe I should have disguised my voice somehow. Noddy would have come up with a whole new identity, as well as a new accent. I still had a lot to learn. I looked up Airbnb when I got home. It didn't take long to find my mum's profile, She was renting out her two spare bedrooms. It can't have been running for long, but already there were a bunch of five-star reviews. One of them said, Elizabeth was warm, welcoming and rustled up a marvellous cooked breakfast. She made an unpleasant business trip feel like a family holiday. I studied the pictures. The two guest rooms looked immaculate. It was hard to believe... One of them used to be my cluttered teenage bedroom with its creaky single bed. I was surprised to see you could fit a whole double bed in there, plus a large wardrobe with room to spare. There was a shot of the living room too. According to the advert, my mum allowed her guests to treat the room like it was their own. I noticed the framed photograph on the mantelpiece of my mum and Snowy the dog. She had such a beaming smile on her face it was almost comical. Then I looked at her profile picture, a selfie she'd snapped in a rush with one hand visibly holding the phone up and the other scratching the side of her head. She was still wearing her wedding ring and her name was still Elizabeth Burton. After everything she'd said about moving on from me and my dad, I was surprised to see she hadn't reverted to her maiden name, whatever that was. Clearly there were still many questions. But I realised in that moment it wasn't my place to ask. This woman was no longer my mother. She had her own life to live and I had mine. What would Noddy do? Noddy would know when it was time to quit. Noddy would have carried on living his life and drawn a nice neat line under everything we'd discovered. That's what I'd like to think anyway. Noddy, like my parents, was unavailable for comment so any assumption I made about what Noddy would have done was based entirely on my internal version of him. I never saw my mum again. There were many occasions on which I was tempted to venture out into the night and sit outside her window watching her dance. Instead I would lie in my bed and close my eyes and in my head my mum was dancing. My mum was dancing to the music in her mind. Yes, one more part to go. One more piece of the puzzle. This isn't a spoiler, but I will say this book has a very good ending and you're going to enjoy it. Watch out for the final part. In the meantime, get yourself onto Amazon, buy a paperback copy for someone you love, convert them to the ragbag alliance the ragbag way of life it's a bit like joining a cult but you basically do what you want just indulge in a bit of ragbag now and again if you like it's a pretty good cult to be in right check out my website frankburton.co.uk and i will see you soon Bag Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Scene on Twitter to find out more.